Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today we have for you an IFE lecture on the delicate tension of digital technology, delivered by Professor Jan Recker from the QUT Business School. This lecture was delivered on Friday, September the 1st, 2017. To stay up to date with IFE podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit our website, follow us on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT, or follow us on Instagram on ife.qut. We hope you enjoy this IFE lecture. This uh, talk, this lecture was scheduled for late July, but sometimes things don't go as planned. In this particular case, little Oscar, who's actually over there, decided to grace us with his presence uh, a few weeks too early. And um, so we had to reschedule this lecture. Um, obviously, that's one of the uh, most positive things that could have happened that forced me to reschedule this lecture. And it also makes you wonder, right? I mean, you have a, a newborn and we have a little, he has an older brother, he's also still little, and you start thinking about the future of these kids. And you wonder what sort of world they grow up in and what sort of changes this world brings upon us. Right, that's, that's not my area of research, but there is obviously research on this. And here's a selection of this. So apparently little Oscar will uh, uh, have a longer lifespan than any of us so far. He'll have fewer kids, but probably earlier than us, and he'll have more rights than us to bitch about uh, real estate prices in Sydney and Brisbane than any of us do at the moment. So generational changes obviously occur. And that's quite topic, uh, topically relevant because one of the things that people talk about when they talk about these new generations, these babies of today, is how they deal with digital technologies. And the word that comes to mind there is this term digital native, and I'm sure you've heard all about this before. This idea that kids, such as Oscar and others, are sort of imbued with this capacity of dealing intuitively uh, with technology, that they have attitude and aptitude of dealing with them quite intuitively. So it's wired into their brains, and so the argument goes. And that's very different to a generation such as mine, which is called digital immigrants. So we're the old people, we struggle with IT, we struggle with new technology, and you know, we're sort of being left behind. Now, that's quite relevant to this talk. There's, there's, there's two problems with this picture. Number one, there's actually not a lot of facts behind this. In fact, when you look up all the research that is on digital natives, the only facts that we know at the moment is that it's uh, a buzzword with a lot, with a lot of false claims behind it. There is no such a thing as a digital native. There is no baby that is being born with a different capacity, evolutionary, uh, than any of us. In fact, everything that we do know, the solid evidence that we do have says they're basically just the same, right? So digital natives versus immigrants is a distinction we like to make. It's very popular in the media, but also in science, but not a lot is behind it. And what I will tell you is that this sort of conundrum is, is, is quite prevalent in the literature around digital technologies. We use a lot of these concepts quite loosely uh, without too much behind it. Now the other problem with this picture that I think is even more interesting is that it's based on this dichotomy. We have natives on the one hand side and we have immigrants on the other side. Yeah? We have black and white. We have people that are good with technology, we have people that are bad with technology. And this sort of dichotomy, these sorts of pictures with uh, two sides to a story, two sides to a coin, they're quite prevalent. And actually, they're not even new. Um, pretty much 20 years to this date, we had a chess game between each man, Gary Kasparov, and a computer, Deep Blue. And 1997 was the first year that the computer won a chess game, something that was thought to be unthinkable. 
that a computing machine would have enough brain power in such a complex strategic game that to suggest and be a human being. 1997, not the first attempt, but the first attempt that the computer actually won. So again, dichotomy, man versus machine, good versus evil if you want. Yeah? Technology versus the social world, who's going to win this? It's a similar picture that we see with the natives versus immigrant decision and with lots of other them. At the moment, we have exactly the same sort of picture when we talk about um, AI, cognitive computing. Robots will take over all our jobs. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen this in the media, you've seen this in the literature if you're an academic. Um, this sort of fear that technology will come and overtake the social world. Yeah, again, technology and the social, man versus machine. Same picture, two sides to the story. Right? And when you look at a lot of these sorts of digital concepts that we're playing around with at the moment, natives, transformation, the digital disruption, digital media, digital strategy, digital anything, even categorizations like age 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0—they're all based on this discrimination. Things on the left-hand side, things on the right-hand side, always with a discrete, some sort of clear demarcation, separation between the two things. Now, what I want to talk about in this lecture is how this view is not very helpful and it's not very realistic. And that a much more apt view on the same topic is not to think that everything has two sides to it, but everything has two faces and the two faces together tell the story. Right? So, not that there's a technological world and a social world and that they're somehow in contrast or in opposition or in separation but rather that these two things, depending on how you look at them, are just the same thing. So there's no dualism here, there's a duality. Things in our world as we know it today have both a social aspect and a technological aspect. And we can't separate them out and it doesn't make a lot of sense to see this. I'll give you some example of this. This idea of implication of social and material things isn't even new. It's sort of like 10, 15 years old and at that time people were studying what people do at work and they realized that there's this mess of, of physical, of material things, like your coffee cup, uh, your post-it notes, your scribblings, etc., and the electronic stuff, your computer, your email system, and so forth. And they said, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to look at technology here and work here. We, look at, we have to look at them together. Now, this is 10 years old. Nowadays, it's even closer, it's even more enmeshed and more implicated. Pokemon Go. I'm not sure how many of you know this, but if you go to South Bing or the UQ campus, they're two of the biggest so-called spawning places in all of Queensland. You'll find more Pokemon there than anywhere else in the state. And what that means, it means that some things that happen on your handheld device have actually implications for reality. If you go to South Bing and you see a large crowd of people, chances are very high that there's not a celebrity out there but a, a, a Pikachu sitting somewhere on your handheld device and a lot of people gather around trying to catch it. Yeah? So things that happen in a virtual world have a manifestation, have some sort of implication on our material world, on things that are happening in reality. Yeah? People run to a particular place because there's a Pokemon gym. It's deeply implicated. You can't separate this really readily anymore. Um, different example, Tesla cars. You probably would have read that they have a new generation of Tesla cars now released and you can still drive them. But the cars, the technology already has the capacity of driving by themselves. You don't have to bring the car to the mechanic anymore. All it needs is a wireless software update that probably happens at some stage while you sleep. 
So the nature of the car, the thing itself, will change at some stage, and it can do that now. Which means that the notion of a car and the notion of driving and the notion of transport, everything that's pretty real, will be completely different because of things that happen in the technological realm and it has implications on the social realm and vice versa. There's no two sides to this. It's both part of the same story. And of course, there's weirder pictures than this. For example, here are two gentlemen that are apparently playing some sort of a handball or tennis. And it's pretty, for me, it's pretty impossible to find out where they're actually playing. Where's the real game? Is the game on the, the thing that's happening on the screen? Or is it happening in the real world here? Where's the lady that's the onlooker? Well, what's she watching? Is she watching the screen? Is she identifying with some of the, the virtual persona there? Or the actual people that are moving hand gestures like you would have done 20 years ago? It's all part of the same story. So a lot of these sort of dichotomous separation views that we know and that we traditionally use in our own language and in research, they're not holding anymore. They're not helpful. And that has a lot of implications. Because normally when we talk about technology at work, we think of a guy with a tool. Yeah, technology is the hammer. I need to contact you, therefore I use my email program and write you an email. Email is my tool. Yeah? And in that sort of world, obviously you can look at the hammer in itself and you can look at the person in itself, and these really used to be two different things. Now increasingly, this is not happening anymore. You can't look at what people do with technology without looking at both of these things together. So instead, everything that we do in organizations or even in, in, in other parts of our social life is a function of both of the things that we do and the things that the things do that we use. You can't really think about a social endeavor anymore without thinking about what the people will do with their mobile phones while they're at it. It has all sorts of weird things. So for example, I know a game where when you go out to uh, have a drink or something, and everyone has to put their iPhone on the table and the first one to grab it and check something has to pay the bill. That's how imbricated, that's how enmeshed the technological world is already in everything that we do. So all of our routines and actions, everything that we do, is not a function of two things in separation, but how these two things click and work together. Okay? Now, and that has a lot of really interesting implications when you contrast a little bit what us academics, what we say, what would happen, what our explanations are, what our theory, and what's really happening in the world. Uh, Rob mentioned that we have, we've been working with Woolworth and other companies for quite a long time. A lot of that is obviously has been looking at how the digitalization, how it affects a retailer. It's a pretty good opportunity because digital, uh, retail is one of the industries where they, would, where they said 10 years ago, the impact on digital technology will be massive. You know, it'll destroy the sector. Why would you go shop at Woolies if your fridge can order the broccoli all by itself? You know, and it comes by drone. And you don't have to do a thing, or at most you have to touch your Amazon push button or something like this. I'm not sure the last time you checked, but I checked yesterday and the Woolies stores are still there. You can still get broccoli too. Right? So there's something happening there that is not really readily explained. All these digital technology theories that are out there, they're very, very popular. And a lot of you would have read a lot of these books about disruptive technology, the second machine, machine age, and how you know, technologies take over our jobs in our world, or even how uh, technologies can foster all sorts of innovation. These are just examples. They give you a, a particular picture of technology, and one that is with a very, very fast onset. You know, it comes, it disrupts, it changes everything that we do. 
Well, it's not quite happening all that fast in, our, in my experience. I'll give you a couple of examples from our work. and um, They might seem subtle and a little bit out of touch, but they all paint the same picture. For example, around mm, seven years ago or so, this notion of disruptive technology, the digital disruption was everywhere yeah, in the media. You had all sorts of headlines about uh, Facebook taking over banking, MOOCs taking over universities, driverless cars taking over insurance, um, and God knows what else. Yeah? Technology coming in, Airbnb is going to disrupt the hotel industry. This and that technology will disrupt this other um, industry. Again, seven years later on the track, not a lot of that has actually happened. The last time I went to the airport, yeah, I can take an Uber, but I can still take a cab. I can check in a hotel, I can check in into Airbnb. So a lot of that sort of disruption, this picture of separation or position, either you're a disruptor or a disruptee, doesn't really cut it. Yeah? It's more that, again, there is disruption happening and there's normal evolution happening. Both of that is happening at the same time. So a lot of this language isn't really helping us. Here's an example of this. This is a map of Australia where every black dot is, in a, is a supermarket store. Yeah, so Woolies has uh, 950 or so stores and this is their location. And obviously, um, in the more populated the areas, uh, you have more stores. You can clearly see where this is Brisbane, um, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, and so forth. Makes a lot of sense. That's the material world. That's what we know, right? Now, in 2012, they did a very interesting digital move. They did two things, one about software, one about hardware. Software-wise, all of Woolies went Google. That's a big thing. They have 190,000 employees, but 187 of them work in the stores. Yeah, your, your little checkout people, the people that fill the replenishment stores and so forth. And importantly, none of them had an email before. None of them had a telephone number. You couldn't reach these people other than going into the stores and talking to them or calling up the stores and hoping that one of them would pick up. Now, 2012, Woolies went Google, everyone got a Gmail account. Yeah? Everyone got Google Calendar, Google Drive, Google Hangouts, Google Plus, Google all sorts of everything of the software palette that uh, Google offers to every single employee. So in other words, you can write an email to a store and the store would answer. That's a big move. Yeah? And in fact, it was and still is, to, as far as I know, it's the biggest Google installation on this planet. At the same time, what they also did is every store got an iPad. So they handed out digital hardware to everyone. Which doesn't sound like a big deal in Brisbane or Sydney, but if you're in Weepa over here, and there's actually no road leading to the store, the only way to get to the store is by passing the Gulf of Cafeteria in a boat, that's a big thing. You have infrastructure. You have Wi-Fi, you have internet. That's a big, big, big deal for a company that didn't have any of this. Now, you have the digital hardware, you have the digital software, and obviously all the literature, everyone said, well, good things will happen. Productivity improvements, collaboration, innovation, communication, mutual learning, everyone will benefit from these things just because you can and you have this technology. Now, what we've done is after this installation, we studied what people would do with all these beautiful things for two years. Not for a week, for two years, just to see how, how people communicated would change. Now, if you believe all the hype around the digital stuff, you would think that everyone started communicating, reaching out to everyone. Yeah? What better way to do it? If you and WePa, you would cherish the opportunity of talking to your friends in Perth and to learn from the Sydney uh, George Street store or whatever else. This is the actual map of communication. Obviously, there's communication happening, and you can still see sort of the centers, but you can also see a lot of white spots still on the map. 
right? Here's a different picture that Sam System's story. This is the distance uh, population where people reached out to. What you can see here, not very well, is that most people communicated within a 50k radius. The people in southeast Queensland talked to people in southeast Queensland, which is exactly what they've done before they had all the digital technology at their disposal. The people in Weeper were a little bit on the outside out. They actually did reach out to other people. They had to. They had absolutely no other way. But overall and all, people did exactly the same thing they had always done, which is talk to the people they know and not talk to the people that are far away from them. It's the same function that we see in our classical social world. The further away you are from me, the less likely you are my friend. Yeah? So when, you, when we contrasted all these findings about what people were doing with all the theories that are out there that were purportedly explaining this, none of them fit. None of the stuff that all the technology literature said would happen actually did happen. Even though oh, there was nothing wrong with the technology, everything worked perfectly. So we had the technological world that did exactly what it meant, meant to do, and we had the social world that did exactly the same stuff they've always done, and the two things didn't match together. Not for a week, not for a month, but for two years running. So this goes in this picture that the, the actions and the routines they were engaged in they're a function of both of these things, and if these two wheels spin at a different time and different speed, it doesn't work. Yeah? Give you a different example. Um, the other thing they did is they used this digital platform to reaching out and trying to um, foster innovation and collaboration everywhere. And then some wonderful initiatives, one of them was called the dumbest thing we do. So the CEO went out and said, hey everybody, please jump onto this platform and tell, tell me what's the most annoying dumbest things we do in Woolies. Yeah? And people responded massively. You know, tens of thousands of people came up and said, I think this is pretty stupid. And some of that stuff was, in fact, pretty stupid. Like advertising a one cent discount or a classic that we do at QT that you have electronic forms, but you need to print them out, sign them, scan them back in, and then send them on electronically again. Right? So, and a lot of these sorts of innovative ideas or innovation ideas about stupid things that we're doing, trying to foster them. Now, what we've done is we looked at all these conversations around these dumber things that are in the potential solutions that were happening in these digital platforms, and we traced what happened to these ideas, where they put into reality, what they put into practice, that they do some of these things. So again, we studied them for one and a half years this time, and we followed up on every single one of these ideas and studied, did it ever make it out of the digital world into the real world? You know, did they ever change some of these stupid things? And as you would expect, probably, 80% of, the, of these ideas never came into fruition. They got stuck in the digital world and never made that transition into the real world. No one acted on them. The actions, the routines of Woolies didn't change because of stuff that was happening in the digital world, because the social world wasn't equipped to make that transition. It wasn't actually aligned with this, right? The two wheels were spinning at different circles. All right? The other thing, again, very normal, the, the, the ideas that did make it were the ones that had important people attached to them. Probably a little bit like here, yeah? Or in any other organization. Um, and we studied this in other organizations as well. So these are two examples where the digital world was, did exactly what it was supposed to be doing. There was nothing wrong with the technology. There's nothing wrong with the way that the technology was implemented or adopted or used. And still, it didn't, didn't really change anything. You can take the other examples. We also studied organizations where on the social side of things, well, everything was great and was peachy. And they put in technology in place and then 
again, this didn't work. Not because there was anything wrong with the organization or the technology, but still, the two sides to this coin didn't really function well together. The imbrication between these two parts of the reality didn't work. Okay? So, in this particular case, it was a very innovative company with a chief innovation officer and all these sorts of concepts that we, we talk around every day. And they put in a, an innovation platform and technology to help them being innovative, and the whole thing was an incredible disaster. Of course, these are little pity examples. If you go out, you'll find more drastic and more publicized examples of where some of these technology-centric theories you know, basically fail and crash into pieces. Um, here's the example of, of Clayton Christensen's disruptive innovation theory, where the only solid evidence that we have says it doesn't work. It just doesn't work like that. Right? And it has led to a lot of debate in the academic circles where people say, well, we've got to be a bit more careful about these buzzwords around digital and how we apply them to explaining our reality and thinking about what that actually means. So let's, let's do this a little bit and let's have a look at this. The problem that we're having in this, in this field um, is an old problem. We've had this all the time. Is that we use a lot of these concepts a bit too loosely and we don't really define what is actually digital when we attach it to words such as digital media, digital strategy, digital business, digital transformation and so forth. What exactly is digital? If we don't define what the digital is, then really nothing is really digital. So what I find very useful here is a, a distinction that's not by me but by, by colleagues um, from Cleveland and they say, well, there's basically two elemental traits to digital technology that, that makes it different from any other type of technology. Number one is the decoupling of digital information from the device that carries it. All right, that sounds very academic, but it's a very simple idea. Is that the idea that any information you can separate from its carrier. If you think about a traditional boarding pass, the information was the piece of paper that you had in your hands. If you lost a piece of paper, you literally couldn't board. Right? Remember that? Nowadays, we have this differently. We have this information separated from the actual device, which means we can change the carrier. We can use a boarding pass. We can use a um, mobile phone. We can use actually a little uh, credit card if you want. So we can decouple the information from the device. The content is separated from the medium, and that means they're interchangeable. Opens a lot of possibilities. I'll get to that. Now, that's number one. The second thing is the separation of logic from its embodiment. Again, what does that mean? It means that anything that a thing does is not hardwired anymore into, into its hardware, it's in machinery. Right? That's exactly this thing that Tesla is doing. It's decoupling the mechanics of driving the car from the actual car itself, which gives it the capacity, if you give it a software update, it can drive by itself. It doesn't matter anymore whether you push the brakes or it pushes it itself. It's decoupled. And everything that's decoupled, that's separated, you can swap or update or change any of the parts without touching the other. Does that make sense? So these are two fundamental principles. Separation of information from its carrier and separation of logic from its embodiment. Yeah? Not hot wiring stuff anymore. And from these sorts of things, and if you add a couple of other features like Wi-Fi connector or 3G or these sorts of things, or a hard drive to it, you can do a lot of really, really, really interesting capabilities with it. Yeah? You have this notion of loose coupling. You can separate content and media. It doesn't matter anymore if you have a Netflix account or a Foxtel account that you don't need to have a television anymore. You can watch TV on your laptop, on your machine, on your iPad, 
everything like this. The medium is irrelevant for the content. You also have notion of self-reference. People and things can talk to each other. A phone can talk to another phone without you interfering if you want to. Independence, some things can do things on themselves. Malleability is this idea of things being able to change to evolve over time. See Tesla, a car that changes its fundamental nature from a car being driven by human to a car being driven by a software algorithm. Which changes everything that we know about transport. For example, when you're driving your car and you're going shopping, you can make the decision whether you go to Coles or Woolies or anywhere else. Who makes that decision once Tesla operates his self-driving car? Tom Tom? Another other thing that are very interesting, because of the decoupling from information from its carrier, you have every information, everything that happens leaves a trace, leaves a footprint. So we leave user-generated trace data about everything that we do with technology. Yeah? You may remember that 10, 15 years ago from the web, where everyone was like, wow, cookies, oh, we leave a trace on the web, that's amazing. That was bound to the web and when you were sitting in front of your computer. Nowadays, literally everything I do whenever I have the phone in my pocket leaves a trace. Everyone, someone can carry and trace all my actions and my routines from these devices. Right? Sometimes even when they're off. And the final thing is here about procrastinated binding, which is the idea that a lot of these digital technologies, they're pretty useless by themselves if you look at them in isolation. But they create a lot of value once we put them into action. So a lot of them, what these digital technologies are about is not about what they are, but what we're doing with them. Here's some examples of this. So self-driving trucks, they're already on the road, as you know, and they have these notions of self-reference in them. They have these notions of updatability or malleability in them. You can change them through a software update. You don't even have to go into this car anymore. It can change what it does and how it behaves. Um, separation of content and media, if you think about, what did I say, Foxtel or Netflix or anything else, you can literally use any household device to display or use anything with, right? Everything moves beyond this. Or Thermomix, the value of Thermomix is less in that funny cook pot and more in the cookbook, having the ability to exchange and automatically download and implement the, the recipes that people upload to these things. Right? So the value of Thermomix also comes from people being part of the community and sort of engaging with this and, and sharing recipes with this that the thing itself can then enact. So the picture that I'm painting here is one where we would say in academia, we would say the ontology of these things, what they are, is evolutionary. They're not static anymore. We can't look at a digital technology in the same way you looked at a chair, because a chair doesn't change what it is, ever. A digital technology changes. My Tesla car, which I don't have, by the way, but if I had a Tesla car, I might look at it tomorrow morning, it'd be very, very different. Yeah? It's in flux. It's fluid. It can change. I'm not saying it changes all the time, but it has the capacity to change. Right? Um, because of everything what these things are. Now, what does it mean if we do research on this, if we try to explain what it means to our world? It basically means that we have to change how we construct explanations about them. We can't study these things by looking at them. We always have to study these things by looking at what people do with them. That's where the only meaning comes about. Now, the Thermomix cooking pot is a pretty useless thing as it stands on your, on your, um, on your table. 
my phone is pretty useless while it's sitting there, but I can do amazing things with it. I can also cook amazing things with the recipe, provided that someone else tells me how. So a lot of that changes from explaining things with nouns to explaining actions and potentials and changes of verbs. That's a huge change if you're working in, in sociology or in, in explaining what organizations are doing. Give you some examples for this. These are four very, very, very prominent, very popular theories in, um, that explain something what organizations are doing, how value is created, how technology is adopted. So that's in a technology adoption model, that's a technology use model, that's an, a model that explains the diffusion of innovation, that's a model that explains how entrepreneurs come up with their brilliant ideas. All of these theories are very static. They don't change. They don't have to do any of these things that I just discussed about. This theory here says that I, uh, that I will use a technology if it's useful and easy. Well, how am I going to know this if my car changes all the time? I can give you a, 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 an assessment of the usefulness of my Tesla car now, but if it changes tomorrow because it drives up itself, its usefulness is completely different. So our theories don't explain this anymore. Um, a lot of the other theories, if you look very closely at them, they talk about technology, but there's nothing about the technology in them. They do the same problem that I talked about earlier with digital natives and immigrants, and all these distinctions. There's nothing digital about them. So this is about technology use. If you look about this, hedonic motivation, value, habit, age, gender, experience. These are properties of the actor, of the person, not of the technology. Yeah? So what we see in, in this realm of, of research is that we either have this focus on the actor. Yeah, we explain Trump followers by looking at their personality through their Twitter feeds. Yeah? We look at um, entrepreneurs and determine how good they are in entrepreneurship by looking at their attitude, their creativity level, their expertise, how well they're connected to other people. Very man-centric. Research in the technology does the same thing, just they don't look at the actors, they look at the technology. They look at any sort of artifact and they tell you how good it is, how much it costs, how reliable it is, how complex it is, how much advantage it provides, how much better it is than the previous version and so forth. They look at that in isolation. People-centric, technology-centric. So we're continuing on this path where we have this dichotomy and we either live in the technological world and study that, or the social world and study this, and forgetting to bring these two realms together. So if you look at how you can bring these two things together, you actually have to pay homage to this picture and saying, well, there's things that people do and there's things that, that technologies do. And both of these things have to wheel together. They both have to be enmeshed and sort of work together to explain everything that we see out there. So we have to shift the questions here. Not what will I do or what is this thing and what can it do, but what is happening? What are people doing? What are the things doing? You know, and what sort of actions are we engaging? And what are we going to do next? Again, that's a very big shift. We can't study the things in isolation anymore. We can't study the people in isolation anymore. We have to see what is happening, right? And for that, people have used different terms. They call them action networks or event networks. The basic idea is very similar to what I'm sure you've known before, um, which are social networks. How am I related to other people? That's apparently a social network graph of me working with other academics. Pretty uninformative, but anyway. So these are relationships between people. Other people study relationships between actions. 
I do this, then I do this other thing, then I do the next thing, and I do the next thing, and do the next thing. Usually we do two of these things in isolation. Now if you look at the same data and not look at what people are doing, but who's doing stuff, what are they doing, what technologies are you doing, you get a messy picture. That's exactly the same graph as this one, but with contextualized actions, looking at who's doing what with what technology. And you get a very, very messy picture of very complex intricate relationships about what is happening here. Who's doing what? What tools are they using? What's the tool doing? And that's a very big shift from what we used to do. Usually we go and we try to simplify reality. We try to make it as simple as possible and give you an explanation about some facet of it. But reality isn't that simple. Give you one example that I hope explains this a little bit. Um, when you think about relay races, the notion that's happening there is called a handoff. Right? Four people running, they have a baton in their hand, and at some stage one of the runners gives it to the next runner, right? In the end, the Jamaicans win usually. Handoffs are pretty ubiquitous. And we know of handoffs in organizational reality as well. And most people associate it with uh, clinics. Handoff is me handing over the case of a patient to some other person, right? The nurses do handovers uh, when, they, when they change the shifts and so forth. Now, the typical metaphor that you find in all the literature on this topic, literally all the literature on this topic, is that a handoff is between two people. I hand over the case from me to you. Now, we studied handoffs as well. We, look, we didn't look at clinics where they actually have certain handoffs. We looked at pretty regular work. We looked at a, a call center from a bank where they look at problems such as uh, I forgot my PIN, my credit card got eaten by the ATM machine, I've overdrawn my bank account. Classical problems, you call the bank um, and they're trying to fix it. Right? So there's a whole bunch of people working in the call center. They all have computers, they have various software systems and they're trying to help you solving that problem. Right? Regenerating your PIN or finding your credit card or whatever else it is. Now, we studied all the handoffs that could possibly occur between people, me handing things over to a machine, a machine handing things over to another machine, a piece of software handing it over to another piece of software. And what we found is the handoff that never occurred was the one with, between people. It was never the case that a call center agent said, hang on a second, I'm just going to go over here and this other person will take over. What happened more often is that I switched between my computer programs. Now I'm switching from my mobile phone to the laptop and continue my work. Oh, what also happened is that computers started talking to one another, hand handing over the cases between them. So between four departments, many, many, many of these routines, the amount of handoffs between people was somewhere between 0% and 4%, like virtually never. Systems and actions changing and people staying the same thing. So it's still me working on this case, but everything else around me changes. That happened much, much more often. And that's a picture that we see all the time when we look at theories that we have about organizational work. And a lot of these metaphors, these images that we use for explaining, like the one of a handoff, they don't actually capture what is going on. So, and that's why people that are starting to realize this are now calling for different types of theories. What we need is more social material, generative, digital, evolutionary, processual, hydro, whatever you want to call them, theories but not just the social or the technical. We have to bring these two things together. Otherwise, we're not explaining reality as we're experiencing it at the moment anymore. Now, how do we do this? 
Um, and now I'm going to reinforce a message that you hear wide and loud and everywhere, of course, that of interdisciplinarity. It's, it's one, again one of these academic buzzwords that we have at the moment. Um, this year I was an assessor for grant proposals for the Australian Research Council and they have to tick a box. And you submit one of these proposals and the, the, um, the system asks you, is your research interdisciplinary in nature? I had 30 or so grant proposals to review. Every single one of them was interdisciplinary. Everyone ticks this box. Yeah? But of course, most of them don't actually do this. But I think there's actually a really good um, case for interdisciplinarity made here when you study digital technologies. And the reason for that is that digital technology objects, they are not the, the focal attention of computer scientists anymore. They're not the domain of IT experts alone anymore. They're becoming the center of attention of everyone because they're everywhere. I'll give you one example that I think is very, very picturesque for this. This was an image that the UN used in 2013 uh, in a campaign for gender equality. What you see here is obviously images of three women in the back, and you see a Google search masks where they use the Google um, algorithm that makes you suggestions for how your query might continue. Yeah, so when you use Google these days and you type in, it gives you suggestions what you're likely going to search, correct? So when you typed in women need to dot, 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 these were the suggestions that you were getting. Women should, women should not, women cannot, etc. And apparently these were suggestions. It was a huge outcry, yeah, four years ago. People started accusing Google of being uh, sexist uh, on all sorts of uh, discriminatory and so forth. Google said, this is nuts. We have an algorithm, and the algorithm works on the data that everybody else puts in. So it's not the technology is at fault, it's the social world is at fault. Google said basically, well, we're just telling you what the most frequent search terms are, right? So most people type in women shouldn't have rights, therefore it pops up. What you see here is that, that a, a computing thing such as an algorithm and a data structure is intimately tied to what we're doing with this, right? So there's technically speaking nothing wrong with the algorithm. There's nothing wrong with the database either. But it leads to all sorts of really bad behavior and it can lead to all sorts of horrid consequences, which is why ethics, sociologists and other types of researchers became interested in Google's algorithm. Yeah? And that's an example where the humanities are entering the computer sciences disciplines. And rightfully so, I think. Because we need to study how digital technology comes into being and how these things are created to understand what they do and what sort of impact they're having. And that's huge. Now, how many of you know that a computer scientist that works with a sociologist? It doesn't happen, it doesn't work. Yeah, very different people. Engineers don't work with, with, with soft people. But I think it's very meaningful. For example, there's not a single study no single ethnographic study, I should say, of how software engineering developed their algorithms. No one has ever bothered to look over these people's shoulders when they type in and set the rules and boundaries by which the algorithm operates. It's huge, yeah? Because the algorithm may change itself these days, but it can still only operate within the bounds that are set by human beings, by people that said, all right, I don't think the algorithm should be able to do this and this and that. Yeah, you may have heard of the law of robotics that people have invented to sort of uh, stipulate certain bounds and limitations for robotics, such as, you know, they should never harm people. Good idea, I think. 
Yeah? We've never studied these people, how they do this. We all know that computer programmers and software programmers are a pretty delicate bunch of people. Um, we never bothered to study them. In our work, we study a different thing. We haven't done this ourselves either, but what we are doing, we're studying the upper side of, side of the coin, not the software side of things, but the hardware. We go out and we study what people do, think, talk about when they're creating these pieces of digital technologies. And you can do that in Brisbane. This is a, a space that was called Vector Innovation Lab, it's now called ASC Space. Um, and that's basically an innovation hub where people build the next generation hardware. And you can go and study what these people are doing, thinking, worrying about, talking about when they're tossing ideas, tossing prototypes, and building things that will uh, determine what the next level of technology will be. And I think that's a very meaningful thing to do, to understand how these artifacts come into being, to then understand how they will change the world that we live in. So what we need to do in this sense is actually go back to some very classical study modes. The study modes that allow us to change, to focus on actions and possibilities that study relationships. So for those of you interested in method, that means surveys are out. Experiments are out. We need to go out in the field and study what these people are doing. Yeah? Cases, ethnographies, we need to go out and study how things evolve over time and how they change. And with, with the explanations that we generate this way, slowly we'll find out and can explain a little bit better how the world is actually changing. Sadly, it's pretty hard to do this. All right, now I'm going to finish here, and I'll finish here with being a little bit of a cynic. As I was preparing this lecture, um, I was reading, obviously, a little bit. And a lot of these sorts of discussions that I'm trying to bring here in the year 2017 have been had before. So this is a paper from 1960 about how computer takes over the office. Yeah, and about how automation will take over the world um, in the 1960s. There's also versions of this from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and so forth. You get the picture. At the same time, this idea of the symbiosis and the, the imbrication of the social and technical world was even earlier. This is a paper from 1950 where they talked about the same ideas. So it could well be that all this digital revolution that we see at the moment isn't actually all that grand and disruptive and ever-changing on such a grand scale because after all the same picture that we have here we had around 100 years ago. It was just a different medium. So thank you very much for listening and for coming out. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.